Okay, why don't we, uh, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are in chapter 5. A uh, quick little background as to what we've been looking at here. Uh, if you recall, we've been in this chapter actually for kind of a long time. It's pretty dense. Um, if you have a red letter Bible edition, red letter version edition, you uh, your entire chapter is probably lit up with red because it means that this entire chapter, for the most part, is Jesus himself giving a monologue. Very important details and information that he's communicating, and we've been kind of making our way slowly through the dense forestry of Jesus' words. There's a lot to unpack. So with that being said, we're going to wrap up chapter 5 today and uh, got some important things to think about with regard to the life of Jesus. Um, Jesus, if you recall, he was uh, being incredibly scrutinized by these religious leaders because he had brought forth a miracle on a guy that was paralyzed. We don't know a whole lot of his story, but we do know that whatever took place, uh, his life was radically changed in an instant. Remember, Jesus asked this guy, he goes, do you want to be healed? Um, he makes up a story as to how he's not able to get in the water, and then Jesus all of a sudden tells him, take up your bed and walk, and he's instantaneously healed. And it's just one of those like fantastic chapters of the life of Jesus going around doing good. This is what Jesus oftentimes did, went around and did and good. Uh, but the crisis point was that Jesus did this on what's called the Sabbath. And that was obviously a point of major contention for the religious leaders. And as a result of that, not only were they interrogating Jesus, pushing against him, but they also wanted to have him killed. That's how climactic this situation was for them and how controversial it was for them. And so what Jesus is doing, all the red letter stuff, is Jesus' response back to the religious leaders as to uh, why he was doing what he was doing. So uh, as we jump into this, I want you to think about the theme of witness and testimony. It's a theme that keeps coming back over and over again. Witness and testimony. Witness and testimony. Um, to what? specifically, more specifically, it's a witness and testimony to the life of Jesus. Three things about the life of Jesus. Number one, his identity. Like, who is Jesus? And we've been kind of pausing and reflecting upon this question a lot because how you answer this actually spells out your eternity. Like, this is how I, I, I can't undervalue this enough, that how you think about Jesus will ultimately shape your your destiny. It's, it's pretty heavy. Um because of all the things that Jesus describes here. And the thing I want you to think about is, does the way that you identify Jesus synchronize with the way that Jesus identifies himself? In other words, is there commonality between the two? Or does Jesus say something about himself that you're just like, nah, can't be, can't be. And if, if it is so, if there is kind of a discontinuity between what Jesus is about himself and what you say about Jesus, and, and, I, and I say this like, with, with honest humility, the burden of proof will be on you to determine what criteria, what authority do you get to say that. Does, does that make sense? And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be pushy or not trying to be combative, but really the burden of proof will be upon you to decide how did you come up with that information, where did you determine that, and, and why do you feel like your angle of authority outweighs the angle of authority of Jesus. Does that make sense? Both of you guys got that. Okay, cool. Now that we're all on the same page. Um, they, not only identity of Jesus, but we also, he's, he's wanting to point out clarification of his words and of his deeds. So these three things, the identity, the words, and the deeds of Jesus. Identity, words, 
and deeds of Jesus. So Jesus went around doing stuff, his deeds. And we already saw that in the chapter earlier, that Jesus heals this guy. But not only that, he's also saying things. So he's talking while he's doing stuff. And the things that he's saying is really crucial because he'll say stuff like, take up your bed and walk. And then he'll say something later, hey, don't do this again lest something worse come upon you. And there's other occasions where Jesus will say, hey, your sins are forgiven. And this raises a lot of questions. Like, like who does Jesus actually think he is that he can say these things? So it's important to just note, like, each one of us have a unique role and a place in this life. God has assigned it to be so. But what's important to note is, like, even for someone like me, as I was thinking through this, like, I may have a role where my job is to, like, open the Bible and teach the Bible. But I'm not doing this on an authority of myself. Does that make sense? So any authority that I have is actually a delegated authority that comes directly from God. And any time I say something that doesn't synchronize with God, whatever God says should trump whatever I say. Does that make sense? So I'm not, I'm not the authority. I'm not a, an authority. I'm not perfect. So in other words, my identity at best is just you know, Brian, who happens to be a pastor. Like, that's that's my identity at best. I'm not the son of God. I'm not a messianic figure. I can't save you from your sins. I can't forgive you of your sins. I can't do anything of any form of eternal value for your soul. My words, um, oftentimes, just straight up contradictory. I'm a verbal processor, by the way. If you know me, you know that sometimes if you've ever had a conversation with me, usually it's like, Fourth pass, things kind of start making sense. There's some clarity, which is kind of ironic because I, I teach the Bible and my, my hope is that like my verbal processing here has actually been done through the many hours I spend studying and prepping and thinking and whatnot. Um, but my words are not always clear. My words are not always harmonious. My words are not always uh, uniform and uh, making sense. Jesus's are very different than my words. And my deeds, man, my deeds don't always synchronize with, with my words. There's major integrity issues in all of our lives. Not so with Jesus. He is not disintegrous, right? There's no disintegration in Jesus. Jesus is 100% harmonious. Everything that his identity is lines up with his words, lines up with his deeds. So the question that John, the author here, is basically writing for us to wrestle with is who is Jesus? And how do we know that he is truly who he claims to be? You guys following so far? Okay, so with that being said, I want to just jump right in and begin to take a look at this. Because, for example, uh, we'll look at this at the end. But Jesus is operating within the assumption that in the ancient world view, that if a person were to come up and just say, hey, by the way, I'm a prophet. Or I'm a person sent from God. That claim is not suitable on its own. There needs to be follow-up. There needs to be something in terms of an authority higher than that particular person to validate or verify what they're actually saying. So, for example, you can write this down if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says this. On the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Um, And so what Jesus seems to be doing is he's lining himself up with this. So, for example, um, the Ten Commandments came in on two what? Two tablets of testimony. Do you ever notice that? Notice that? They're called the two tablets of testimony. Why? Why two? Because just one would not provide the sufficient means. So two, 
validate that, hey, this is said twice, this is declared twice. We see Jesus kind of following a similar suit to identify the fact that, that what he says is important, but he also recognizes in the context of the culture and the world in which he lives in that they will not receive his testimony if it's just him going around saying it. And the same should be true for anybody. Like people that go around saying, hey, I'm a prophet or I have certain, you know, rights or privileges or whatever that make me a unique person, we should be suspicious of that. I'll just be straight up honest. Like, like if you ever feel a deep sense of cynicism or suspicion of that, that's probably good. If you're going around, you're following every single person that goes around like, hey, I'm a prophet, listen and live by every word I say, that's probably not good. And we've seen countless times where that has proven uh, horrible for so many different people. But the point that I want to make back on the story of Jesus, because what Jesus has to say needs to be verified and proved. So what Jesus is going to do is going to basically point out three different witnesses. I would just want to read through the text with you guys, and I'm going to summarize with some final thoughts. So number one, we're going to take a look at verses 30 through 35. And this is Jesus's words uh, testifying to the witness of John, or John the baptizer. So verse 30 says this, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus saying. We're picking up at verse 30. We read through this last week, but I want to kind of pick up from there. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, referring to the Father. Verse 31 says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. This is kind of a a nod at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Um, Verse 32 says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. So Jesus basically turns and acknowledges, hey, John the baptizer. Uh, You guys all know who John was. And there was kind of a consensus among most Jews in the first century uh, that identified this guy, John the baptizer, whoever he was, as being a significant man sent from God. And his words were prophetic. Um, John was a controversial figure, and it's, it's interesting because the religious leaders had a unique relationship with John. On one hand, um, I think they, there were some that wanted to believe what John had to say, but also, too, they didn't seem to be overwhelmingly like in favor of John the baptizer because they, they knew that if they started calling negativity down upon John the baptizer, that the, John was kind of like the, the, the spokesman for the common people. And John had this massive movement of people that were following John, John the baptizer. And so if the religious leaders said anything negative about John the baptizer, they were always worried about a revolt and, you know, coming against them. And then they would then lose their power. So a lot of it was like a power play. They didn't want to lose their power. And so, but, but John the baptizer comes along and John, the author of this book, again, we've talked about this before. There's two different Johns, so don't get confused. That John, the author of the book, tells us that John the baptizer at one point said, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. In other words, this is, this is John's way of saying, I'm not the main guy for you to be looking at. It's him, it's Jesus. So John the baptizer pointed to Jesus and said, that's the lamb of God. That's the one that's come to take away this in the world. Listen to him, follow him. So here's the thing. John the baptizer, super well-known guy in the first century, pointed to Jesus and said, follow him, he's the Messiah. So Jesus is, you know, calling, summoning witness number one in the form of John the baptizer. Let's jump on down to the very next thing, verse 36. He's going to call attention to the witness of the Father. 
Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So John, great guy. That's what Jesus is saying. Great guy, a valid witness. A lot of people really liked him. He was wildly popular. He was a celebrity in his own right. Total, like, first century TikTok influencer. That's who John the Baptizer was. But Jesus is like, look, I have a more valuable witness than even John the Baptizer. And then he goes on to say, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me himself bore witness about me. Did you catch that? The Father himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So what Jesus is saying pretty loudly and clearly and you know, unambiguously is, is I have come to bear testimony to the Father. Everything that I'm doing is bearing testimony in this reciprocating relationship that the Father sent me. I have called you to follow the Father, but you guys claim to be following God, but by rejecting me, you're actually rejecting God. Does that, does that logic make sense? That's what Jesus is saying. And it, we're going to get to this in just a moment, but the point that I want to just emphasize here is that Jesus is summoning the Father, saying that God the Father has borne testimony of me. And it kind of, again, it kind of raises the question, that's what Jesus is saying, is that the very works that I do, the, 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 the words that I say, the works that I do, I can't say these on my own. So it's the whole point. Everything I'm saying, everything that I'm doing is in complete alignment with Yahweh God. And this is probably one of the reasons why Jesus ends up getting crucified. It's because he so upset the religious leaders of the day. And they were incredibly threatened by this. They felt that what Jesus was doing was the, the epitome of blasphemy and blasphemous acts. And so, therefore, they were angling to put Jesus to death. So the last thing I want you to take a look at is the witness of Scripture. And this is the last thing that we'll focus on and we'll kind of summarize with some final thoughts. Jesus calls to the witness of Scripture. Uh, this is probably a reference to Moses or the writings of Moses. And it says this, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But they are they, they are that which bear witness about me. So Jesus makes reference to the fact that they are uh, deeply invested in searching the scriptures. Um, I had a chance to go to Israel in the beginning of 2020, like literally just before COVID happened. And um, one, of the, one of the things that was remarkable for me, we had a chance to go into these various schools of learning. I think they're called the yeshivas or something like that. There's one right by the Temple Mount, and then we had also gone into this other one. And um, there was this one space that they would only allow men to go back into. So I, I walked back there, and, and in this back room, it was like insanely hot, like sweaty. It smelled like a locker room, that type of level hot. It was just sweaty. It was, it was nasty. I can still smell it in my, in my nostrils. And, but in this room, there was so much movement. And the movement were these people sitting down on these little desks, little desks like this, with, with the Torah, very large. Imagine like your, your grandma's family Bible, massive, but it all written in Hebrew. And they would have this like little, um, I don't even know what you call it, like some stick thing, like metal thing. And they would use it to turn the pages and, and touch because they didn't want their finger to touch the page because it, it would, it would, it would uh, create kind of a, a defilement. So they would use this thing. And what these guys were doing is they were reading the text. They were like, literally like this. It was moving, a buzzing. It was a constant, frenzied movement, though controlled. And it was a way of basically pouring over the Torah, studying, searching. I mean, we don't even have, we don't even have framework to compare 
our like little quiet time to what these guys are doing. Like when we talk about reading the Bible, you know, it's like, you know, listening to an eight minute, you know, audio version, Lectio 365 or whatever it is, you know, and that's, that's awesome. I'm not knocking that in any way, or maybe, you know, spending 10 minutes journaling. All that's awesome. What these guys were doing is like in depth, pouring over, reading, meditating, thinking, regurgitating scripture in this incredible movement of just, I don't know, there's something about it that was also really beautiful. Because they saw scripture as so sacred and as the word of God that they, they gave themselves to it. Now, this is what Jesus is referencing. He's like, you search the scriptures. You pour over the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But they bear witness to me. What Jesus is saying is that the scriptures are ultimately pointing to a larger theme or a larger storyline. Let me, let me put it another way. It's possible to be so enamored with the Bible and the scriptures that you treat it kind of like a hobby. It's interesting. And I, I would, I'm quick to admit, like, especially as a young Christian, when I started reading the Bible, this is definitely how I read. I would remember listening to authors that would talk about, like, did you know that the pyramids were in the Bible and read about the pyramids and all of this, like, stuff that was, like, far out crazy, like, UFOs are in the Bible, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I, and and numeric value, there's, you know, if you're familiar with what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But I I remember, like, like going down these rabbit trails and just being enamored by so much, like, data and information and wild and crazy thoughts about the Bible. But you know what it did? It, it never like really pointed me to Jesus. It actually just kind of made me arrogant. And I would look at other people that are like, you don't know about this stuff? Don't you care about Jesus? Like, don't you care about God? You must hate the Bible. And at the end of the day, the point that I would make is this, is that it's very possible to treat the Bible like a textbook or like a really interesting textbook, like a high-level, high-volume Shakespearean text that's, that's sort of inspired and beautiful and amazing and filled with incredible truths. And that's all it is to you. It doesn't change you. You don't become more like Jesus. Especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you value the Bible, please, please, please listen to this. Because you're in danger. Your soul is in danger of being so hyper-focused upon data points that you miss the main point of scripture, which is Jesus. The Holy Spirit throughout the entire, that's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit is moving, breathing, inspiring this entire beautiful like collective of 66 books written by many, many different authors throughout hundreds, not thousands of years, all pointing to one simple unified story pointing to Jesus. He's saying, I'm the one that all of these things are pointing to. There is a way to read the Bible that I think leads to life. There's a way to read the Bible that leads to death. And so make sure that you are on the path that leads to life that ultimately ends up pointing to Jesus. So he's saying that you guys search the scriptures, but they actually point to me, but you're not turning to me, so therefore you don't have life. And he goes on to say, I do not receive my glory. I do not receive glory from people, verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come from my father's name, in my father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? So what Jesus seems to be pointing out is that that these guys kind of had like this fraternity or brotherhood. And as long as they were like religious leaders and they were like signing off with other religious leaders, it was within this fraternity, it was like 
they were always looking for ways to kind of slap each other on the back. Like, dude, you're amazing. Did you hear the latest, you know, things that I learned and figured out and the latest rewards and recognitions and acknowledgments that I've been given in sort of a way of just like elevating their own ego. And she's like, you guys, you guys care so much about your own self-congratulatory efforts. You're somehow forgetting about the honor and the glory of God. Like that's, you know, I like to say that you're missing the big E on the I chart. You're focusing on, like, inconsequential, non-consequential data points, and you're missing the main point where all this is going to. It's Jesus. It's kind of like, I don't know, being in a hotel room. This is a dumb analogy, but it's like being in a hotel room and having this window that points out or goes outward to looking at the Alps or, you know, some massively beautiful scenery outside. And you're just enamored by, like, the paint on the pane. Like, oh my gosh, isn't that like, oh wow, there's like a little spot on the window here. It's like you're missing, you're, you're misusing that window. The window is main, meant to be a means to get you a view of this incredible sense of beauty, but you're focused on something, you're misusing the window. That's what Jesus is saying, you're misusing the scripture because scripture are intended to point to me, you're not coming to me, therefore you're missing the point of the scripture. In other words, your entire life is, is a facade. It's, it's misappropriating. And therefore, you're in danger of losing your souls, is what Jesus is saying. Verse 44, it says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, then how will you believe my words? And so again, Jesus is basically just using some sort of logic and reason to say, you claim to be followers of Moses. Moses pointed to me, but you reject me. Therefore, you are actually rejecting Moses. He makes this little statement here that I thought is important as well. He says, Moses, on whom you set your hope. That might be part of the problem. Their hope is fixed on something other than Yahweh God. And as a result of that, they find themselves finding elements in Scripture that will affirm their life, but not lead them to the life, capital T, capital L, life, Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of finish in thinking about a couple thoughts. Is Number one, these guys were unwilling. This. Jesus makes this statement. He goes, you guys are unwilling to come to me. You're unwilling to come to life. And I, I thought it would be kind of interesting to just kind of point out three different ways in which these guys um, live out their unwillingness. They have this unwillingness to ultimately honor Jesus. We see this basically in verses 40 and 41, I'll recap. He says, you refuse to come to me so that you might have life. You do not receive glory. And his, his whole point seems to be is that you have this commitment to protecting your honor over and above the honor of God. And it's almost like, again, Jesus is saying, your devotion, your dedication to protecting your honor will cause you to lose your soul and lose yourself. I mean, I think of this world in which we live in right now. We have so many things that are vying for our attention, not just our attention, but our honor, <laughs> our honor. I mean, there's different degrees of this. There's things that just, you know, dumb TikTok videos that are just... Buy for your attention. Then there's others that are like 
no, I want to be honored. I want to be liked. I want to be shared. I want to be replicated. I want others to mimic this and follow down this path and do exactly what we had done. And it's a form of honor. And the hope is, is that by engaging in the honor of something else, that that will then give us something in return in terms of significance and value and purpose and meaning in this life, maybe a little bit less loneliness that we oftentimes feel in terms of our souls. But what we end up doing in the process is we devalue the very purpose of which we're alive. We were made. Think about this. In ancient worlds, the idea of the image of God was common. And the only people that were deserving of that title, the image of God, you know who they were? Pharaohs. Caesars, wealthy, elite, the powerful. Until you come along to the writings of the scripture. And the scripture says, every human being bears the image of God. This is God's way of saying, every human being has intrinsically, based upon them, within them, value. Because they bear the image of God. There's honor that's there. Ultimately, our hope is that we point our honor back to God, long to be in right relationship with God, and not settle for any form of idolatrous response by turning to something that is intended to be like a reflection of God instead of turning to the God who shines gloriously. And this is what seems to be Jesus is saying here, is that you guys are not honoring me. I honor God. Everything I do honors God, but you're not honoring me. Therefore, you're really not honoring God. The second thing, he says, there is this unwillingness to love God. And this is their claim. He says, their claim to love God ultimately while rejecting God's means of life is really this contradiction. Because again, they're, they're saying that we love God, but we don't like Jesus. Did you get that? We love God, but we don't like Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that I reflect God. It's kind of like, I've been married, I just celebrated my 32nd wedding anniversary. And it'd be like, if someone comes to me and they're like, hey, I, I, I like you, Brian, but your wife, I, I, don't, I don't like her. It's like, man, you're, that's a fight with me. Like, honestly, like, I love my wife. Like, I will fight for her. I will defend her. Um, and she, and I don't mean that. I mean, I would, I would fight for her. Like, don't, don't push me. Otherwise, I will fight. But I, I'm, I'm just going to stop right now. Backtrack. Don't send me an email. Yes, I will fight for my wife. I will defend her honor because she is worthy of that. But the point I would make is this. Back on track. Is that that she is reflective of me. And what Jesus is saying is that if you claim to love God but hate me, you're living in a contradiction. Because I am the image of God. I'm the son of God. I represent God. So we have a in our culture today spiritual but not religious. You heard that phrase? Spiritual but not religious, where I want to be spiritual. I want to have some form of cultivated spiritual uh, ideas or ideology. And that could be through Eastern practices, which a variety of ways of of tapping into uh, the consciousness or whatever the case is. And it's, it's a way of saying, I want some form of power that comes from God. But I don't really, I'm not interested in being in relationship with God. And certainly not really interested in Jesus because Jesus seems a little bit, bigoted, or at least his followers are very, very bigoted. So I don't want anything to do with Jesus, but I definitely want the whole God stuff. Whatever form of impersonal God stuff there is, that's out there. And what I'm suggesting to you, what Jesus is saying, 
you, you can't have that. It, it, if you get that, it's actually not God. It's, it's, it's a distortion of God, a.k.a. demonic activity. It's not truly God. And what Jesus is really trying to bring home is a sense of, of we, we want the stuff of God, but not the person of God. But by the way, there's, there's a word for that that's been around for a long, 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 long time. It's called paganism. We, we want various aspects that God or the gods offer by way of, you know, meat and fish and, you know, rain in due season and all and heat from the sun and, you know, light from the moon. We want all of this, stuff, but we're not really interested in devoting the sum total of our attention to God. It's one of the reasons why there's a major, major pagan resurgence in our world today. I don't know if you know this or not. Major pagan resurgence. People are actually identifying as witches, warlocks. Like actually identifying, like they practicing ancient Wiccan religions that have been around for various ways for thousands of years. And it's a way of having and tapping into some form of religious or, or spiritual power without having to range your life around God. It's, it's a convenient way of saying, I still want to maintain complete authority and autonomy over my life, but have some form of power that's beyond this world in which we live in. And Jesus is saying, you, you actually can't have that. That's not the way this whole thing works. And again, if you disagree with that, I, I just humbly ask, on what authority would we challenge Jesus on what he has to say? That's where I'm just, I'm, again, I, I, I can't state this enough. Like, we have to carefully think through the words that Jesus is saying and if we disagree with them, the burden of proof or evidence is on us to figure out how to disprove that. Lastly, is we see that they trust, uh, they, there was an unwillingness for them to trust uh, the scripture. And this is, this is interesting to me. They, they looked at scripture, and, and on one hand, they said, we, we trust everything that Moses has to say. We follow Moses to the T. In fact, there are some people that Jesus would interview and talk to, and they'd be like, hey, um, tell me about your life. And they're like, I've lived a righteous lifestyle, which means I've done everything according to Moses and have followed his path. But Jesus' whole point is that, look, if that path of truth does not ultimately lead to humble submission to King Jesus, then ultimately it's a path that is not leading to truth. It's one that will ultimately lead to brokenness and death. I was listening to a teaching this past week, one of my favorite writers and authors, a guy named Peter Kreeft. He's a philosopher, and he had this whole series on uh, comparing voices from the past. And one or two sets of uh, philosophers he compared was uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Augustine. And they live, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years apart. But um, one of the things that he pointed out was, on one hand, Augustine was, was deeply devoted to God. Jean-Paul Sartre was deeply devoted to his atheism. And they had vastly different outcomes of life. And just if you're unfamiliar with uh, Sartre, he is probably the most influential voice that most people might not have ever heard of. That everything we're living in right now, especially in California, San Luis Obispo, has all been shaped by Sartre. Like, which actually kind of goes back to Rousseau and whatnot. But the point of the matter is that it all has this hierarchy. It all comes from, channeled through uh, these French philosophers who 
created what was called uh, existentialism. The whole idea, this is a big fancy word, that means the, 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 the philosophy of existence. Why are we alive? What is existence? How do we spell this out? What's the purpose of life? And he makes this point in here for Sartre. Freedom, ultimately supreme. He wants freedom. He wants the ability to do whatever it is that he wants without ever being checked, without ever having anybody breathe down his throat and tell him he shouldn't be doing that. He doesn't. He wants absolute, complete freedom. But because freedom is supreme for Sartre, uh, truth about God is useless. It's worthless because God doesn't exist. He starts with the premise that there is no God. Therefore, we have to figure out our existence based upon no God in existence and so, therefore, any truth about God or thoughts about God or wisdom about God is actually useless. On the other hand, Augustine, for him, God and truth are ultimate points of supremacy. Like, he looks at God and truth and says, my heart longs for truth in God because God is the fullness of truth. And as a result of that, what Augustine would discover is that freedom, true freedom, is actually totally accessible purposeful, meaningful, and satisfying. So this is freedom. If we absolutize freedom, say this is the most ultimate thing in my life, I will do everything I can to, to obtain freedom, to live my life now as if I'm in control of everything. What Augustine would say is that you're actually on a path to destruction. The way that we reframe our lives is around the person of Jesus and what scripture teaches about him. And as we do that, what we will actually find is our life finds true meaning and purpose in Jesus. Last thing I want to just finish with, and I'm done, in terms of just a few observations to conclude with. Um, Number one is that there are many messianic figures. So that seems pretty obvious. Again, just got to look at your culture. Let me show you a little slide here real quick. I'm almost done here. Um, These are just within the past hundred years. I don't know if you know any of these guys, but all of them, all of them have actually claimed to some degree, some form of messianic role in the world. You know, David Koresh and Paul Young Cho and a handful of these other guys, and all of them have, have died. They've all kind of passed on for the most part. I think all of them are dead. Maybe one of them might be still alive. But the point of the matter is, is that all of these guys have claimed. So, again, the point that I would make is just because someone claims to be a Messiah or a Savior, someone that's going to come along and set the world to right, does that mean that they have the goods? Does that make sense? Because we live in a world, especially now that we live in this, like, hyper- cross-sectionalized world where we get to know what's happening on the other side of the world by just simply picking up our phone and knowing the thoughts of other people who bear the image of God on the other side of the planet instantaneously. But the point that I would make is this, is that because of that, we've got all sorts of people standing up that can very quickly, very easily make a claim of saying, I'm here to save you, to rescue you, to change this world, to make it better, to make it great. And I will do that by my power. And the question that we should be asking is by what authority can you say that? Can you actually fulfill that? And here's why this matters. Because if you give your soul, your heart, your devotion, your faith, your confidence to something that only claims the ability to save you, or an ideology even, I'll throw that in there as well, that when it breaks, you break with it. When it fails you find yourself crumpled on the floor. But what we have with Jesus is he says, I'm the true savior. I've come to bring life. The second thing that we see 
is Jesus' commitment to working within the Jewish framework. And I just find this fascinating because I keep going back to it. Is, is Jesus is Jewish, that the God of the universe, the God that created all the cosmos with just his word, for whatever reason, chose to come into this world, subject himself to the very elements of humanity and the very Torah that he himself made. This is amazing to me. That God is so deeply committed to this human project that has gone off track. He enters into his own story. I've said this before. It's like C.S. Lewis entering into Narnia. Or Shakespeare entering into Hamlet saying, hey, you've lost your way, Hamlet. I'm going to help you because I know where this whole plot line is going. This is God saying, I know how to set this thing back to right. And lastly, is we see that John's stated motive, again, just keeps coming back. Over and over and over again. I'll just read this little passage right here. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Jesus performed many other signs not recorded in this book. His whole point is that there's a lot of things that Jesus did that I just didn't have time to record. And then he goes on to say, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. So I love the fact that John's so upfront in just telling you, hey, here's what I want for you. My agenda is not hidden. My agenda is very clear and outspoken and there up front so that as you listen to the story of Jesus, his person, his works, and his deeds, and verify the testimony and the witnesses that he brings and calls to say, let them take the judgment stand and let them determine who I truly am and verify, does it line up with who I claim to be? And as they do that, his whole hope would be that as you hear the story of Jesus, your heart would come to life and say somewhere in the depths of who you are, I've been living according to a false story, a different narrative, one that promises much but always fails to deliver, one that has given certain hopes and aspirations and ideological constructs to say, if I trust this, if I invest in this, if I give myself to this this particular thing, then it will promise me life and life for everybody else that's in my tribe. But it has repeatedly over and over and over again failed, to which Jesus would come back and say, I'm the Savior. Trust me. I've come to bring you life. To the full. How is it accessed? John says that we would believe on him. This is the beautiful thing because at the end of the day, all of us, all of us, I don't care who you are, what type of life you've been going through, what type of strategies that you've been trying to apply, every one of us has faith in something. We are all people of faith. The question is, is what are you having your ultimate confidence in? Because what you have your confidence in will ultimately reshape your heart, your desires, your actions. And those actions will frame a character and a character will ultimately frame your future. What you desire will ultimately shape your destiny. Those two words, by the way, are from the exact same root word, destiny and desire. And John's invitation is to say, set your affection, your desire on the one who loves you, who gave himself for you, who's come to make things right by entering into his own story and taking upon himself the very consequences that you and I are constantly not only creating but also suffering from in order to give us a new future and a hope. I'm done. How about we all stand? I want to pray over us right now. And as I pray, I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances you're going through that have brought you here that maybe Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of. And that's the beauty of this chapter is... Jesus enters into this guy's life. He wasn't seeking for Jesus. Jesus was seeking for him.
love this. God is for you. And the way he's for you is he comes to acknowledge the brokenness that we live in. The things that have been done to us, things that we have done to others. Scriptural word for that is sin. And to deal with that sin. And to create a new pathway forward so that we can become new people by his power. His Holy Spirit, his presence. We become like this temple, this living, walking, breathing temple of God so that everywhere we go, people look at our lives and are like, oh, that, that's a storyline. That's beautiful. Look at how they treat their family. Look at how they treat one another. Look how they even treat their enemies. That's, I've never seen anything like that. They actually pray for their enemies. They're not calling down fire from heaven upon enemies. They love their enemies. That's beautiful. There's something beautiful, redemptive about that. And all of that points back to King Jesus. So I want to pray for you, all of us right now. And if you're here this morning and you need prayer for anything that's going on, immediately after we're done, I want to invite you up. We'll have some people up here to pray with you. I'll be up here to pray with you. And love to just do some business before Jesus. So let me pray right now, and we'll dismiss you. Jesus, thank you so much for your great love. And God, even now, we just turn our hearts to you, and we say that we love you. We say that we need you. Jesus, you alone have come into this world. You have communicated who you are. You've demonstrated who you are. You've taught about who you are. And you bear witness. Your, your life has been borne witness to by the Father, by John the Baptizer, by the very Scripture themselves. And so because of that, Lord, we can have a deep confidence that you are for us and that your work was legitimate and that you truly are, as you have repeatedly stated, the Savior, the one that has come to rescue this world from its brokenness and sin, that we can place our confidence in you. So God, even now as we scatter, would you help us to orient our lives entirely around who you are, Jesus, as King and as Lord and Savior. We pray these things even now in Jesus' name. Amen.